quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Oh, well, welcome to First Move. I'm Julia Chastley. Great to be back with you for a special primetime in the UK edition of the program. Boris Johnson finally saying goodbye for Liz Truss. The hour is well and truly nigh. Truss now officially Prime Minister after an audience with the Queen at Her Majesty's Castle Balmoral in Scotland. She's set to make her first address to the nation in the coming hours. Her plans for tackling the cost of living crisis in the United Kingdom will be a focus in the days ahead particularly whether there's a freeze before the freeze. Government helped to prevent soaring energy bills this winter in focus. Reports say she's readying a plan to help households and businesses with their soaring bills. And as if on cue to illustrate the dire need, European gas futures soaring some 35% intraday yesterday. That, just to give you a sense, five times higher than just a year ago, a response to Russia's decision to keep the Nord Stream 1 pipeline shut indefinitely. The new fear, of course, that Germany will be unable to hit its winter gas storage targets, with Berlin announcing a third aid package to assist with soaring costs. Energy angst being felt in the United States, too, with the state of California declaring a power grid emergency amid a record-breaking heat wave. And now China, too, saying it suffered its hottest August ever. The inflationary implications of this energy crisis and how central banks respond is already one of the key financial market themes this fall. It's been the case all year, of course. U.S. stocks trying to power up after the long holiday weekend on the back of three straight losing weeks amid fears of yet more steep rate hikes. Europe As you can see, they're holding steady ahead of a crucial European Central Bank rate meeting this Thursday. A Bank of England official also warning this week that more forceful action is going to be needed to tackle rising UK prices too. Plenty for trust and us to discuss. And Max is awaiting the return of the new Prime Minister. (laughs) He's outside the Houses of Parliament. Max, great to uh, be with you today. It's official. It certainly is. Uh, Welcome to Westminster. Liz Truss, the new Prime Minister, uh, preparing to give her maiden speech, uh, launch her premiership. Uh, She's expected to lay out her priorities. Uh, They include addressing that uh, crucial energy crisis in the UK. Earlier today, both the outgoing and the incoming Prime Ministers uh, travelled up to Balmoral Castle in Scotland to see uh, the Queen. Custom dictates that the monarch invites the leader of the biggest party to form a government, that is Liz Truss. Now, normally this takes place down the road here at Buckingham Palace, but it was moved to the Queen's Scottish home for health reasons. Uh, Both audiences are held in private, but we did get this photo uh, released by the Press Association of um, Liz Truss. Um, This is kissing of hands, effectively. They don't actually kiss hands, but this is the way the appointment traditionally works. They'll shake hands. And uh, this is the Queen's 15th Prime Minister, uh, would you believe, uh, Julia? Ahead of his meeting, Boris Johnson earlier on delivered his final address as Prime Minister. Above all, thanks to you, the British people, 
to the voters for giving me the chance to serve, all of you who worked so tirelessly together to beat COVID, to put us where we are today. Together, we have laid foundations that will stand the test of time, whether by taking back control of our laws or putting in vital new infrastructure. Great, solid masonry on which we will continue to build together. Paving, paving the path of prosperity now and for future generations. And I will be supporting Liz Truss and the new government every step of the way. Johnson was then embraced by his family, staff members and supporters, all of whom feel he was pushed out way too soon. By the end of today, he'll have moved out of Downing Street. Liz Truss will be moving in as Britain's first a third, rather, um, female Prime Minister. Uh, she is now heading back to London uh, to give her speech, uh, we think in just over two hours' time. But, you know, as is the case in the UK, it's all weather dependent. Nada waiting by for her arrival at Downing Street. Nada, we're going to speak in Anna, to Anna in just a moment about her big domestic priority, which is energy prices. But can we talk a bit about what we know about uh, Liz Truss on the international stage? She has been foreign secretary for some years now. So we have a sense of where she sees Britain's place in the world. Well, absolutely. We have seen Liz Truss taking on the role of foreign secretary, particularly, of course, during the war in Ukraine. There have been some uh, t some talk around uh, her position as foreign secretary in the media, often people uh, saying that she sort of resembles the uh, former prime minister, Margaret Thatcher, something that she has actually uh, often looked to, to do herself. And there is question around the sort of prime minister she will be. We've seen her, of course, in the past as trade secretary as well uh, during Brexit. So there have been some exposure to Liz Truss in those positions of power in Cabinet. The question now is what sort of premiership uh, she will lead. We're still expecting to learn a little bit more about that today. Of course, as you mentioned, in just over two hours, we are expecting to give her first uh, speech as Prime Minister here at 10 Downing Street. And there are a number of challenges that lie ahead for her, of course, but there is question as well around the support that she has within her own party. Now, of course, she was uh, elected. We saw that victory speech yesterday by a comfortable margin of just over 57%. Of course, it's crucial to highlight that she was elected by Conservative Party members. That is uh, a small uh, slither of society, really, less than 1% of the overall British electorate. And we've already heard uh, from the opposition parties questions around her mandate uh, to lead the government as Prime Minister, uh, particularly when the country is dealing with so many crises. How she will command that control over her party, particularly when we've already seen uh, so much blue on blue infighting, if you like, uh, over the last few weeks and months during the Tory leadership campaign. Uh, and of course, that was something that Boris Johnson actually touched on uh, in his farewell speech. Uh, he touched on the divisions within the Conservative Party. He uh, joked that if uh, Larry the cat at Downing Street and uh, his dog were able to see past their differences, then so too could Conservative Party members. But the, uh, these are deep divisions that Liz Truss will have to overcome as she tries to form a new government today, of course, giving her first speech, but she'll also be looking to appoint her cabinet ministers and, of course, laying out the framework that will underpin her premiership. We've seen her approach as foreign secretary. We've seen her approach as a former trade secretary. The question now is what sort of prime minister she will be and how she will tackle these crises that is left behind by the uh, former and outgoing prime minister, Boris Johnson. 
Uh, Nada, thank you. We never know how someone's going to perform as Prime Minister until they are Prime Minister. Can they live up to all that promise? Liz Truss has many challenges ahead of her, as Nada's been describing. One of the most pressing, though, is domestic, and it's that rising cost of living. The UK is enduring its highest inflation in 40 years as food and energy prices soar. Average household energy bills have risen 54% already this year and are expected to go even higher next year. The new Prime Minister has promised to deliver a plan to address the crisis, but as ever, gave no detail. For now, there's no official announcement on how any of this will work. Anna Stewart joins me now. You're going to be watching this first speech very keenly, aren't you? Because we've heard all of these promises about what she's going to do, but they're so generic. They are, and we've had hints now for weeks over this very long leadership contest, and it'll be interesting to see what actually makes it into the big, bold plan we are promised, and we expect to get that on Thursday. But it has been widely reported that really the deal in terms of energy and how she's going to deal with households facing an 80% increase in what is already very high energy bills just next month is there's going to be a freeze and that the freeze will take place almost immediately. It will be capped for households in terms of energy bills where it is right now. And that will stay in place until the next general election, which, of course, is interesting timing. Matt's 2024. Now, that, according to reports, is expected to cost £130 billion. This is for the household protection. But also reports suggested that perhaps there will be a separate package for businesses facing high energy costs as well. That could be costing around £40 billion. Where is all the money coming from? Well, according to all the reports, and we do need to wait for the actual big, bold plan to be announced, but according to reports, it sounds like energy suppliers could take out government-backed loans. This is something, of course, we saw during the pandemic. And effectively, this would mean that this loan would help them pay the difference between the wholesale price, which is so high, and where household energy bills are capped at. And that would be repaid over maybe 10 to 20 years by adding a subsidy onto customers' bills. So households will pay it eventually just over a longer time period. On the one hand, I think everyone agrees something had to be done. Next month, when the next price cap uh, rise comes into place and we're seeing 80% increase in bills, it is estimated by Charity National Energy Action that one in three households in the UK will enter what is known as fuel poverty, unable to adequately uh, fuel and power their homes. So something had to happen. I think the criticism at the moment of this energy price freeze There are a few, but one is it's not very targeted. It doesn't really hit the lowest income uh, people in society or the pensioners. Perhaps it could be more uh, focused. And how long can the UK afford to sort of kick the energy price increase down the road? Because there is no guarantee when or if wholesale energy prices will fall. Uh, Let's have a look at the British pound. It was under huge pressure yesterday. It actually dipped to a low we've not seen since 1985 at one stage. I think it is still dancing around the $1.15 mark. And also we're having gilts under pressure as well. Yeah, look at that, $1.15 pretty much actually falling a little bit from where I last saw it. Gilt's also under pressure, Max, uh, with investors a bit worried, I think, about some of these plans. You know, looming tax cuts, increased fiscal spending, UK government bonds are hovering just around 3% for the 10-year. I've lost the... Guys, I've lost the sound. We will also be okay. getting, Max, uh, in I've the coming... i sound temporarily, but... In I the coming hours, we'll also be getting, of course, a new uh, cabinet. Julia, we are expecting but the other thing we're watching for, Julia, conference. after the speech later on today, uh, is uh, the key appointments, amongst them, of course, Chancellor of the Exchequer. So we expect to get emails about that this evening, UK time, but that's going to be uh, the first sense we really get of the cabinet that Liz Truss is planning to forge ahead with. Max, well handled there.
the joys of live TV. Thank you so much. It was a seamless transition and we'll be back to you later on in the show. And thanks to Anna there too. Okay, we're going to take a quick break here, but uh, coming up, crypto regulation. Yes, it's coming. The question is, will new rules be met with cheers or jeers? We'll chat with a man who laid out much of the current guidelines to get his take and or to make a Porsche accelerating towards an IPO. Amid current turbulence, will it reach the finish line? We'll discuss. Stay with us. Plenty more to come. Welcome back to First Move. Call it a government order intended to ease disorder in the cryptocurrency quarter, perhaps. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen expected to send a government review to President Biden this week, covering the future regulation of crypto assets and their role in finance. Now, a growing debate is underway over whether regulatory oversight of crypto should be contained within the current banking system or left outside, as key Democratic centres like Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders have indicated. Why does this matter? Well, it matters to consumers because some believe crypto technology could improve the efficiency of the financial system and offer consumers more choice. Today, of course, the debate is all the more urgent following the crypto collapse this year that has sent Bitcoin tumbling more than 50 percent. We've also seen the blow up of stablecoin Terra Dollar and the failure of crypto lender Celsius. Okay, so let's discuss this. Brian Brooks joins us now. He's the CEO of blockchain technology company Bitfury. He's also the former U.S. acting controller of the currency responsible for issuing initial guidelines for crypto in a previous life. Brian, great to have you with us. Um, Okay, let's start with the current banking system as it stands today. And I think you and I would agree, look, it's not perfect, nor is the, what, 2,000 plus examiners that, that oversee it today. But even under your time at the Uh, OCC, you dished out what more than a billion dollars worth of fines. You caught risk management violations. So something's working. Yeah, that's right, Julia. I mean, the whole point of banking supervision is the idea that inherent in any lending transaction, inherent in any financial mediation is a certain amount of risk, right? Both sides are counting on the other side to comply with their obligations and to meet their promises. And usually that happens, but sometimes, being humans, uh, we encounter people who are greedy or negligent or not that good at their jobs or committing crimes. And we funnel that through a system of supervision so that we catch bad actors and stop them to the extent that we can. That's the point of banking. It's puzzling why we would take a different view of other financial risk. Yeah, it's there to make the system safer, not completely risk less, but to to de-risk those pockets, as you pointed out. Okay, along comes crypto. Anywhere between, on a daily valuation basis, what, a fifth and a fifteenth the size of the current $15 trillion banking system. And for those that are believers, they think it can compete with savings, with payments, with, with lending and improve efficiency. It's got great opportunity. It also has potential risks too. Why would senators like Elizabeth Warren and and Bernie Sanders say supervision of crypto should be outside the financial system, the current financial system. What's the incentive? Yeah, this is a very very puzzling question. I've thought a lot about it and I can only come up with two answers. One answer is a, a belief that all of us have in childhood that if you ignore something, it'll go away. And I think most of us know that that's not the way problems work. Generally, if you ignore something, they fester, they don't go away. So if that's not their thinking, uh, the only other possible explanation I can come up with, Julia, is the idea that crypto is fundamentally about creating a more user-controlled economy. It's about the idea that you can have lending, 
and deposit taking that isn't intermediated by human beings, but is instead controlled by the holders of the tokens themselves. This is potentially a threat to people who believe that we need a different model for financial services in this country, a model in which the government provides the financial services, whether they be loans in the form of, for example, President Biden's recent loan forgiveness program, whether it be payments, as for example, the Fed's proposal for a central bank digital currency or other aspects of finance. And so that's the great struggle, I think, of today's financial debate. Do we want to move in favor of a user-controlled system free from central dominance? Or do we believe that fairness requires that only the government provide financial services? This will be an increasingly major part of the debate over the next four years. Okay, I want to explore what a user-controlled financial system means relative to, I guess, more government control, because that would be the alternative in this case. But before we do that, I want to take a step back and say, let's say we bought crypto regulation under the current rules of regulation in the financial system. Would things like the Celsius breakdown, that the crypto lender that you and I have discussed on this show before, would that have been caught and prevented? And would the blow up of uh, Teradollar, the stablecoin, also have been prevented under existing regulations? Because I think these are important questions to ask. And then we can go, OK, then we're missing a trick. And actually, there is better. Yeah. So, so look, listen, I wrote in a recent Wall Street Journal op-ed about this exact problem. And while you can't guarantee that every specific error will be caught by bank regulators, because regulators are no more flawless than, than criminals are, right? We're all human beings. But what we do know is there are some basic principles of banking regulation that apply to all financial transactions. So, for example, the concept of liquidity risk, where we make sure that there is sufficient liquidity inside of a system to meet obligations. Or the concept of concentration risk, where we manage somebody putting all of their chips on one number and we force diversification to make sure that if that number blows up, there's still investment assets in other places that uh, are uncorrelated with that risk. These are the kinds of things that banking regulation is, is all about, making sure that there's adequate capital to bear losses, making sure that risk management is in place to prevent these concentrations of risk. And the kinds of things that happened in Celsius or the kinds of things that happened in Terra are precisely the kinds of risks that if they happened inside of a bank would have been looked at by examiners who would have been asking questions early on. And even if there might have been some losses, they likely would have been much smaller. That, that's why the banking system is stable relative to the unregulated parts of the economy. So I think the answer is mostly yes, would have been a good thing to have, have eyes on these things before they blew up. You know, the other thing you could have said, and you, you mentioned it in your op-ed in the Wall Street Journal, was when we had the London Whale disaster incident mm. that people might remember of JP Morgan, they didn't get thrown out of the uh, financial system regulation uh, as, a, as a result. Yeah, it wasn't a reason to push them out. It was exactly. a reason actually for more regulation. Um, OK, so it, in a user-controlled financial system, we're talking about payments being settled on blockchain. We talk about this a lot on the show. We no longer use debit cards. You use algorithms to allocate how people get money and borrow money rather than perhaps a, a loan officer. What does a system where the government has more control look like, Brian? Because if we're not regulating crypto within the existing regulations, then to your point, we're looking at more government control. What does that look like in practice? In your yeah, mind? well, we have... We, we so, so, Julia, we have, unfortunately, a very current real world example of what it looks like coming, not surprisingly, from China, our major global competitor uh, who has built a central bank digital currency platform, which is the model, I fear, for what's being built inside of our Federal Reserve today. 
So China's theory, as they have said, is that to build a central bank digital currency will give them the power to do three important things. The first thing is to have their own network that they control that is separate from the U.S. sanctions system, which is the way banks globally currently operate. So once China builds their own system, it's closed off from the rest of the world and can be controlled by the central party there. The second reason, of course, is it allows them to control inbound money in a way that no one can currently do that. So imagine a world where U.S. investors who want to invest in emerging Chinese companies are required to make those investments in the Chinese central bank digital currency versus in dollars as things currently work today. That has a major negative effect on the ongoing power of the dollar as the global reserve. And finally, and maybe most frightening to individual Americans, is the idea that when you have a centrally controlled financial system, the government can decide which payments to authorize and which not to authorize. So if you've read in the newspaper about Chinese protesters who weren't allowed to buy train tickets to travel, uh, the way that kind of social prohibition was administered was through the banking system. And in a world where the money literally has to clear through the central bank for every individual transaction, you now have the government deciding who can buy luxury goods, who can take their families on vacation, or who needs to be suppressed. Those aren't American values or Western values, but once the ability to control those things has been built, it's only a matter of time before government officials will use them to yeah. wit China. It's a really extreme example, but it does give you an indication and it flies in the face and is the antithesis of everything that anyone working in the crypto sector, and I'm talking the underlying technology here, um, thinks is, is required or, or would like to see. Um, what it would require, though, let's be clear, is legislation. And I don't see any appetite for that on either side, despite what these senators are saying, which is perhaps why they're writing a letter now to the current controller of the currency to say, hey, this is the way we should be going. Um, Brian, I have about a minute left. What do we need to watch here? And what is required? Well, what we need to watch is the, is the risk that crypto continues to be a political issue versus a regulatory issue. I was gratified that the letter to the OCC asking that my guidance be rescinded was only signed by four senators. Now, they were four very influential progressive senators, but other Democrats didn't join that, that call. I think what that means is that there's a growing bipartisan group of people in our Congress who recognize the future's coming for finance. Americans fundamentally want more control over their financial lives, not less. And at the end of the day, we'll get some nuts and bolts regulations, probably not before the election, but I think after the election on some basic issues. Comprehensive regulation isn't something we do well in this country, but the good news is only four out of 100 senators want this uh, activity kicked out of the banking system. That tells me that more normalcy might be ahead, and that's a rare bit of good news in an otherwise very difficult political climate. Yeah, we'll keep talking about it. But your point is, is such an important one. This has to be about regulation, not about a political football. Um, as challenging and as volatile as this is sector has, has been in, it can be incredibly beneficial, we hope, technology. And in the end, it should be about consumers and improving things for consumers. Um, and we have to keep that in Absolutely. mind. Yeah. Brian, always a pleasure to chat to you. Thank you. Brian Brooks there, Thanks. the CEO of Bitfury. We'll talk again soon, sir. Thank you. We're back after this. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky is set to deliver remarks virtually at the New York Stock Exchange. He's also set to ring the opening bell. So we are, what, 90 seconds away from that. And I believe he's speaking now. Let's listen in. Freedom has different manifestations, but the most important for many is the ability to work for your benefit, for the benefit of your children and the one of your country. 
in Ukraine. We are fighting for everything that you have. We stand so that every Ukrainian would enjoy all the manifestations of freedom available to a free person in a democratic society. We have achieved significant results. We have united the whole world around our struggle for freedom. We are liberating Ukrainian's territory from the Russian army. We have already started renovated everything that was destroyed by the Russian terror. We are rebuilding our economy. We are giving you and your companies the opportunity to work together with us for the benefit of all us. Ukraine is the story of a future victory and a chance for you to invest now in projects worth of hundreds of billions of dollars to share the victory with us. Today, we kickstart a large-scale promotion campaign to attract investments. Advantage Ukraine. We will tell the world why Ukraine is a place for good and financial opportunities. I invite you to Ukraine. Invest in Ukraine. This will be your victory and a new success story for your companies. Slava Ukraini. Start your work. President Zelensky there speaking ahead of the opening bell at the New York Stock Exchange on this shortened week, wearing a T-shirt saying the power of freedom and saying actually that the country's kicking off a two-day campaign now, Advantage Ukraine, to try and drum up investment in the country. And clearly, I want to bring in Sam Kiley now. Sam, investment in Ukraine, the rebuilding of Ukraine, essential and needs to begin as soon as possible. Yeah, I mean, many investors will think that that's a little bit previous. I have to mm. say, Julia, I mean, there's a war on here. You wouldn't know it, frankly, here in uh, central Odessa. If you go down to the sea, though, or try to get to the sea, you'll be blocked by soldiers because that's a strategic location and it has been shelled. And that's the point. Ukraine needs to be able to bring in not just foreign aid, but maintain its human capital here. If you think about somewhere like Kharkiv, that was one of the major... Uh, IT hubs, uh, tech hubs uh, in the whole of Europe. I spoke to entrepreneurs there that had subsidiaries in the United Kingdom rather than the other way around, which is how people would see it. The human capital here is very strong. It is robust. It needs bringing back. It needs employment and it needs to be rebuilt. But it is going to be a tricky decision for investors uh, as to whether or not they want to invest now or once this war is over. But, of course, there is the old adage that you buy while the blood is running in the streets. The blood is literally running in the streets in the east, in the east of this country uh, during the southern uh, counteroffensive here, not very far from Odessa. Uh, there is fierce combat, and that is not over, and it's not going to be over soon, Julian. No, and you raised so many great points there about the hopes for uh, digitizing the economy of the future. And we're obviously very familiar with that with remote work and people that have actually had to leave the country but are still trying to work and, and to support the economy too. And certainly with the conversations I've had with big investors, to your point as well, it's a case of let's get the war through and ended before we start to invest. And unfortunately, that leaves um, Ukraine in a very difficult position, not only with what's going on there at the moment. What can you tell us about the nuclear power plant in Zaporizhia and the, and the challenges they have, <clears throat> even with the cooling system now? What's the latest there? 
Well, there is repeated allegations from both sides of shelling, as we now know only too well, Julia. There are two UN uh, inspectors in the Zaporizhia nuclear power station. The, the uh, sixth reactor was disconnected from the grid, the Ukrainians say, in order to carry out repairs and put out a fire that they blamed on the Russians. The Russians have claimed uh, that they've received incoming fire from uh, across the river in Ukrainian territory. That is not something that has any kind of evidential support that we've seen so far. It's an allegation that is made very, very frequently. But the other day, the Ukrainians did admit that they were very, using precision weapons, had hit uh, a handful of targets on the outer perimeter of that area. And of course, Enohoda, the dormitory town for that nuclear power station, also being hit on a regular basis. More reports that it has been hit again today. But that those the finger of blame for those attacks is being used, being pointed in the West, at any rate, mostly at Russia. But to the wider point of investment, too, when you've got things like that going on, it does give people the jitters. But there is inevitably and obviously a massive amount of reconstruction already going on here. There is a huge amount uh, that the Ukrainians do in spite of something like the threat of a nuclear a disaster with a potential meltdown of a nuclear reactor there if the cooling system gets uh, destroyed completely and the reactor goes into meltdown. Not that far away, though, you will see people sweeping the streets, repairs uh, to shelling, to missile strikes are almost instantaneous here. Julia? Sam, great to have you with us. Thank you. And um, as you mentioned as well, the International Atomic Energy Agency is set to release that report on the security situation there as well. So we will bring that to our viewers the moment we get it for now, Sam. <clears throat> great to have you with us. Thank you. OK, let's return now to our, one of our top stories. Liz Truss has taken the reins as the UK's third female prime minister. Earlier today, both mistress and outgoing Prime Minister Boris Johnson travelled to Balmoral in Scotland to see the Queen. Normally this takes place at Buckingham Palace, but it was moved to the Queen's Scottish home for health reasons. Both audiences are held in private. Later this week, Prime Minister Truss is expected to lay out her government's priorities, including a plan to address the country's ongoing energy crisis. One major employer in Britain is talking about how it's planning to help staff deal with surging costs. The John Lewis Partnership, which owns supermarkets and department stores across the United Kingdom, says it's offering free meals to all employees, including temporary staff, for three months from October. John Lewis is the largest employee-owned business in the UK. About 78,000 permanent staff are partners, entitled to a share of the profits and a say in how the company is run. The free food programme comes as the retailer prepares to add 10,000 temporary workers ahead of the holiday season and it says it's seen some customers already shopping for Christmas trees and decorations and it's only just September. Joining us now is Andrew Murphy. He's the Chief Operating Officer for the John Lewis Partnership. Andrew, fantastic to have you on the show with us. Let's talk about the decision to provide food for your staff. It's, it's a bold decision. Why did you feel it necessary? Hi, Julia. Well, um, it's actually something that we first did during the uh, COVID-19 pandemic. And in fact, for most of that, that kind of period in the 18 months during which we were um, in sporadic lockdowns here in the UK, um, we found that it was a, an excellent way to uh, help our staff in a really practical way and one that they really appreciated. And so when we um, saw the shape of the, the cost of living crisis um, emerging earlier this year, it was a natural place for us to go because it's, it's practical support it's really welcomed and it's something that we're already fairly well set up to do for our staff. 
I mean, I think um, it's unique to you, but I think other companies should be looking at this and, and working out what they can to do to support people too. As I, as I mentioned, you're in a unique position in many ways because you're employee-owned and, and your permanent staff members do get a say in how it's run. You've also made a decision to provide a, a 3% bonus and a, a 2% pay rise, I think. But when we look at the, the inflationary picture in the UK, I think for many employees, they have to realise that that actually their, their take-home pay is worth a lot less in light of, of rising prices. There's only so much you can do, Andrew. I guess the question is, can, can you do more? Yeah, that, that, that's right. I mean, to be fair to, to all employers, um, we, we're not blessed with a crystal ball. And so mm. uh, government forecasts and, and, and you know, um, broad economic forecasts were, were so short of capturing what was, was happening and about to happen to us this year that we're all playing catch up to a degree and even now in the UK although we can see that the cost of of energy is going to step up again in October with a new government it's it's possible that some maybe even all of that might be mitigated and so employers are are, are really in a in a difficult position but but what's clear is that some significant help will be required and in reality government probably won't be able to do everything that that anybody would want so earlier this year we moved um, pay for our lowest paid partners um, up uh, just over 7% uh, and for um, everybody uh, who uh, who had, had a pay rise in, in the recent past got at least 2% then a 3% um, annual salary bonus on top of that and we've created an £800,000 uh, hardship fund uh, to help uh, partners through the cost of living crisis which is double the number the, the amount that we usually provide in a, in a normal year. Wow. So your employees can just apply to that if they're having financial difficulties. And, and I guess on a case by case basis, you'll provide more support. Um, that's good to know. You mentioned you mentioned the new government and, of course, new Prime Minister Liz Truss. How optimistic are you that support will be provided? There are obviously concerns about what the what the country can afford at this moment in time, too, particularly whilst dealing with Brexit. What are you hoping for from the government? Uh, yeah, look, it's it's a very difficult situation, and, and I don't think we would want to give specific advice to the, the government. Although we we've, we've collaborated with you know um, governments over the years to try and help them understand the practical realities, um, either for business or for employees, and, and we'll continue to do that. I think it's clear that there's going to be some some fairly major uh, help provided. I think there's always the challenge between trying to to target that in a smart way to minimise the bureaucracy that's attached to delivering that. And then the fact that there's really very few people who are entirely untouched by the economic pressures that, that we're seeing. And it, it would be wrong, I think, and we're reminding ourselves of this, it would be wrong to characterise this as a problem that's only affecting the lowest paid in society. Um, most people are on, you know, even if they're middle income, that income is fixed and clearly the costs are, are not at the moment and it's not easy for people to make those adaptations. And so I hope there'll be a broad package of support from government that doesn't focus narrowly on any one group or one means of, of delivery. Uh, and uh, although obviously most money should flow to those in most need. Yeah, I want to talk about the business as well. I mean, I mentioned in the introduction, you're seeing people buying uh, Christmas trees, baubles for the Christmas tree. I think we could all do with some Christmas cheer, quite frankly, at any point in the year. But I guess the concern I have in seeing that is perhaps that people are buying ahead because they do anticipate prices rising. How are you managing potential price rises into the Christmas period as a business? And, and I think to your point, and it's a very important one about the risk of energy price rises further, are you prepared in the case of the need for blackouts, 
for example, and, and how are you operating as a business in light of the, the rising costs of energy too? Because it, it's crippling for some smaller businesses in the UK. How are you managing? Yeah, I mean, look, as, as a big um, relatively well-funded business. We're, we're in a fortunate position when it comes to energy prices in that we have a team of people who buy energy ahead of time, um, what's called hedging the, the cost. And so we are reasonably well protected on the majority of our energy needs. Now, obviously, if there's disruption to the actual supply, that, that's a different matter. Um, and the, frankly, there only is so much that you can do in terms of planning. And it's one of the things the pandemic taught us that it's great to have a plan, but really what your business needs to be most of all operationally is, is adaptable and agile. And, um, you know, getting too caught up in the planning and multiple contingencies can sometimes be counterproductive. We'll stay very close to government and very close to the energy providers to make sure that we've got as, as good visibility of that as possible. In terms of the consumer, I don't think the early purchasing of, of um, Christmas lines is necessarily an indication of spreading the cost. I think um, the desire to uh, plan Christmas earlier, make it a bigger event, has been something that we've seen really since since before the pandemic, and it really took hold as we were coming out of the pandemic. And I think it actually is just about there being key moments now that people value and are prepared to plan for and invest in to a deeper and greater extent than was maybe previously the case. And in fact, that, that's really our um, our way of thinking about how the consumer behaves now is that really they're very focused on these key moments in their own lives and particularly of celebration with friends and family. Making up for lost time. I think um, yeah. that's the message there. Um, Andrew, great to chat to you. Thank you so much for um, giving us your thoughts today and um, and thank you for what you're doing for your employees. I think every little helps. Thanks, the Chief you. Operating Officer Bye. for the John Lewis Partnership. Thank you, sir. Okay, after the break, we return to Westminster where Max Foster picks up reaction to Britain's new Prime Minister, Liz Truss, takes up the reins at Downing Street. Welcome back to London, where we are awaiting the arrival of the new Prime Minister, Liz Truss. She's somewhere in the air between Aberdeen in Scotland and here. Uh, the formal procedural business of changing Prime Ministers has been taking place over 800 kilometres away, uh, near uh, Aberdeen at Balmoral Castle. Earlier today, Boris Johnson visited the Queen's Scottish residence to tender his uh, resignation. Uh, the Press Association reported that Mr Johnson and his wife Carrie spent about 40 minutes with Her Majesty whose mobility issues ruled out a trip to London. A little later, the Queen greeted Liz Truss, asked her to form a new government. Ms Truss is due back in London and will soon deliver her first speech as Prime Minister, laying out her immediate priorities, such as a plan to freeze energy bills, which is uh, the big domestic issue here. Let's talk about the international issues, though. Conservative MP Tobias Elwood joins me. We should set your stall. You were one of the uh, main critics of Boris Johnson. He took the whip away from you, as it's called in Parliament. So opportunity for you to reset with a new leader as well. I hope that is the case. And we've got the constitutional housekeeping out of the way now that uh, Theresa May is the Prime Minister. Theresa Look, May? Sorry, not Theresa May. I know, Liz, I was getting those fashion, uh, uh, Liz Truss. I was just thinking of all the Prime Ministers that yes. um, the Queen has seen going back to Churchill, which includes obviously yes. Boris Johnson, David Cameron, uh, Four Theresa in the May. last six years. Four in the last six years. Too many. Yes. We need to settle down. We need to focus on what's required for the future. I'll be looking for the internationalist peace because much as there's a focus on domestic matters, the challenges that face the British people, 
ultimately there's an absence of international leadership, I'm afraid. We're not getting it from Germany, we're not getting it from France, we're not getting it from the United States right now, and Putin is taking advantage of that. Time for an international leader to step forward, galvanize the international community to stand up to what Russia is doing. We're not putting that fire out in Ukraine, and it will spread unless, uh, unless we're more vigorous. Well, she's spoken very tough words in relation to Russia and China, hasn't she? Tougher, arguably, than Boris Johnson. Absolutely right. But then the talk on the campaign trail often doesn't necessarily mm. manifest itself as when you get in to number 10 uh, itself. So I need to want to see a reinvigoration of that bond, that special relationship with the United States. I'm afraid it's uh, true that uh, perhaps Boris Johnson got a bit too close to Donald Trump. That affected... Joe Biden's relationship with him, time for that to reset. But as I say, stress to focus on what's going on on the international scene. We're entering a, an era of change internationally, and we're not really waking up to that yet. How does um, she fix things with Joe Biden? Because the other sensitive issue between the UK and the Biden administration is the Northern Ireland Protocol, this idea that there's a border down the North Sea, in many people's views, separating Northern Ireland from the rest of the UK. She wants to get rid of that, as I understand it. Joe Biden's very concerned about the implications that might have on peace on the island of Ireland. I do hope this is quietly dropped. The last thing we need with our economy where it is, is a bun fight with the EU. That doesn't help us uh, at all. So I do hope that we can get back to the Tothis talks, get an agreement in place, which we weren't that far off from, but recognising that the America has a stake in this, given that they were the signatories and they, they were witness what was going on there with the, uh, the, the accord that took place there. But there are bigger things to focus on, and not least this uh, axis that's developing between Russia and China. We heard Putin say the other day that the baton of international leadership must now be handed away from a Western nation, the United States, to a non-Western nation. If that ever is an indication as to where the world's going, we really do need to wake up. A key ally is France. Um, she criticised President Macron, saying she didn't know whether he was friend or foe during the campaign. He um, was pretty vociferous in his response as well. How is she going to fix that? Because that's a vital relationship too, isn't it? Uh, completely. But you've been following this campaign trail, this distraction, I have to say, over the last uh, number of months this summer where our party have been taking chunks out of each other. I'm afraid that's part and parcel of the game. We've got a curious relationship with the French that goes back a couple of millennia. I think that was for a particular audience. I'm sorry she said it, I have to say. France is one of our closest security allies when it comes to Europe. And I keep stressing, you know, of what's going on in Eastern Europe will spread unless we give greater attention to it. Tobias Elwood, appreciate your time. Thank you very much indeed. Now, uh, after the break, Julia's back in the driving seat. Not written by me, but uh, by a brilliant writer, because Porsche confirming it's on the road to going public in what's set to be a blockbuster IPO. She'll have the details. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks are up and running on the first trading day of the week, and it's a volatile start to the session. We are a touch lower, as you can see, the major averages heading into the red after posting gains in the first few minutes of trade. The Nasdaq currently on track for its seventh straight session loss on continued interest rate uncertainty. Stocks in the news today in the meantime include Bed Bath & Beyond. Its shares tumbling in early trade on news that the death of the company's CFO on Friday last week has been ruled a 
suicide by police. The horrible incident taking place after the firm announced a massive restructuring, including layoffs and store closings. Bed, Bath and Beyond shares, which have been swept up in the meme trading craze too, have seen wild price swings this year, but are now down some 50% year to date, as you can see. Okay. in the meantime, investors, start your engines. Germany's iconic sports car brand Porsche is gearing up to go public despite recent stock market and economic speed bumps. Volkswagen began considering a Porsche spin-off back in February, just as Russia's war in Ukraine began. Reports suggest the automaker could reach a valuation of up to $84 billion. Paula Monica joins us now. This is a hugely profitable part of uh, Volkswagen's business, or at least their interest in this business is. How and when? What do we know? Yeah, we're looking potentially in the next few months, Julia, and in Frankfurt, probably not a U.S. listed uh, stock debut, but clearly Porsche is a very profitable part of the Volkswagen Empire revenue up more than 8% in the first half of the year, operating profits up more than 20%. So it is doing better than the rest of Volkswagen. And by doing this uh, share sale, it could free up Volkswagen to spend even more on electric vehicle investments. So that's got to be something that Elon Musk and Tesla should be watching pretty closely. Yeah, I was just going to look at this. They want to spend, what, nearly $90 billion over the next five years to develop EVs. So this is welcome money, which perhaps one could argue is why they're pushing despite other IPO plans screech into a hole elsewhere in, in the world, and particularly the U.S., Yeah, there are concerns about the broader market volatility, the war between Russia and Ukraine, obviously having an impact on the broader IPO market, the Fed raising interest rates. There are a lot of concerns right now. We have seen a slowdown with not that many, quote unquote, unicorns private startups going public. But I think there might be an appetite for a big brand name like Porsche that is part of a larger global multinational that is Volkswagen to potentially make it out into the public market, even though you may have companies like Instacart and other privately held U.S. firms that are going to potentially hold back on IPO plans and maybe wait until 2023. Mm, we shall see. Paula Monica, I've only been gone two weeks and the backdrops changed and your hairstyles changed and everything. I like it. I just wanted to just wanted to mention I'll get told off. Paula Monica, always a pleasure. Thank you, sir. OK, and finally, it's well known the actor Tom Cruise likes to do his own stunts, but recently he took things to a whole new level. The only setup you need is that he's promoting Mission Impossible from a plane flying in South Africa. Just watch this. Let's all have a great summer. And action! We'll see you at the movies. All I want to do is scream. Ah! Tom is a legend. That's all we can say. And we salute you. That's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. You can search for at CNN. Connect the world is up next and I'll see you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.